You're all good, brother. Very good to be with you on this Lord's Day, as always. Let me ask God to help us. Father, we thank you for what we've sung so far. Uh, we thank you, Lord, for the way that you have taught us in these songs, and especially, actually more specifically, from your word. And we ask for more help even now as we look at this text together, that you would help us to rightly understand it by your spirit and to rightly apply it. Speak through this preacher, O Lord, and help him by your mercy to not rely on his own strength and ability, but yours. Lord, only if the Spirit moves through the preacher and through the listener will it have the effect that's intended. And so we pray that you would do a mighty work today. Save, O Lord, unto justification and sanctification. All for your glory, O God. In Christ's name we pray. Amen. There are a lot of reasons that we sing. And, you know, some people might look at the way that we structure our worship service and they say, you guys sing seven songs every Sunday? We'll say, well, one of them is before the service. But still, people, people are a bit shocked that we spend so much time together singing. We take singing here very seriously and it's dear to my heart, not only because I'm musical, but because I'm one of the pastors here, and we recognize the importance of singing songs to God. Music has, a, as a gift from God, properties in it that help us to express emotions and lament and joy and gratitude in ways that are different from simply just saying them. God has gifted us with music in that way. We also take it seriously, not only because we're singing to God, uh, but we're also singing to each other. We're also teaching each other. We're also encouraging one another in song. A lot of the songs we sing, for example, aren't grammatically directed to God. It's grammatically directed to each other. Like, Christ the Lord is risen today. Hallelujah. We're informing each other that Christ is risen, and therefore we should praise him, right? And so because of that, we take singing very seriously here. Uh, we're very careful about the songs that we sing. And, I mean, I know that compared to other churches, we're, we're not produced like some churches with bigger bands, but that doesn't matter to us. What matters is, is what we're singing biblical? Is it nourishing to our souls? So there's lots of reasons that we sing. We sing in light of who God is, in light of what he's done. And we sing because of the great salvation that he has given to us. And that actually can be broken down into three different things. We sing because he has saved us. Amazing grace, how sweet the sound that saved a wretch like me. We sing because he is saving us. Prone to wander, Lord, I feel it. Prone to leave the God I love. Here's my heart. O oh, take and seal it. Seal it for thy courts above. Is that not singing about sanctification and our ongoing battle with sin? We sing because he has saved us. We sing because he is saving us. And we sing because he will save us. We sing because he will save us. You, you sing that song almost home with such great gusto, which is amazing. Because it tells us, you really want to go home. You really want to go be with the Lord. And so we sing because he will save us. Later on today during the Lord's Supper, one of the songs, or rather the song that we'll sing in the final verse says this, O Lamb of God, now reigning on the throne, the judge of all, faithful and true. O Lamb of God, you'll make your power known when all your foes receive their due. Victorious King, when history's fading, you'll call your bride and take her place. Victorious King, creation's waiting for your redeemed to see your face. 
Don't we love singing songs like that? Because it's a reality that while we have been saved and are being saved, oh, how we long to finally be saved and delivered by our Savior. And it is that particular aspect of salvation and singing that we're going to be focusing on in this passage in Isaiah. And as we go through this passage in Isaiah, we're going to take a look at four different observations from the text. Number one, we'll take a look at the call to sing. We'll look at the zeal of our Savior. We'll look at the certainty of our salvation. And then we'll look at the shame of his enemies. And all of that funneling into what is the title of this sermon, which is also the sermon in the sentence of this sermon, Sing for Our Savior is Coming Back. All right, so let's take a look at this. First, let's take a look at this call to sing. The call to sing. Read with me Isaiah 42, verses 10 and 11. I'm sorry, 10 through 12. Sing to the Lord a new song, his praise from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea and all that fills it, the coastlands and their inhabitants. Let the desert and its cities lift up their voice, the villages that Kedar inhabits. Let the inhabitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Let them give glory to the Lord and declare his praise in the coastlands. So we see in the beginning of verse 10, this command, this imperative, sing to the Lord. Or you'll notice there that the word Lord is spelled in small caps, meaning L is capital and then the others are also capital but smaller, which you may already know is the Hebrew word for God's name that he's revealed to his people, his covenant name, Yahweh. And the only reason that we point that out here in particular is that the, the, the object of their worship is to be their covenant God, Yahweh. The God who made a gracious covenant with them. The one who said, they will be my people and I will be their God. He's calling them to worship him as opposed to worshiping idols. Sing to the Lord and they're told to sing a new song, a new song. We learned a new song today, right? It's not what this is talking about. This isn't talking about write a new song. It's talking about singing with freshness. Sing afresh to God. And is that not the way that we should be coming here and singing to our God? Because his mercies are new every morning. He shows us so much grace every single day. So much undeserved favor and kindness. So that when we come together, we sing in a culmination of all of the kindness that our gracious God has had on us. Sing to the Lord a new song. Now, what is the occasion for the new song here? Because whenever we see in the scriptures, sing a new song, it's referring to some sort of new manifestation or revelation of the grace of God. And so, to answer that question, we just need to take a look at the previous passage, what we preached on Isaiah when we were here in Isaiah last. We'll just read it. Isaiah 42 Verses 1 through 7. God says this. Behold my servant whom I uphold, my chosen, in whom my soul delights. I have put my spirit upon him. He will bring forth justice to the nations. He will not cry aloud or lift up his voice or make it heard in the street. A bruised reed he will not break and a faintly burning wick he will not quench. He will faithfully bring forth justice he will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth and the coastlands wait for his law. Thus says God, the Lord, who created the heavens and stretched them out, who spread out the earth and what comes from it, who gives breath to the people on it and spirit to those who walk in it. I am the Lord. I have called you in righteousness. I will take you by the hand and keep you. I will give you as a covenant for the people, a light for the nations, to open the eyes that are blind, to bring out the prisoners from the dungeon, from the prison those who sit in darkness. I am the Lord, that is my name. My glory I give to no other, nor my praise to carved idols. Behold, 
The former things have come to pass, and new things I now declare. Before they spring forth, I tell you of them. And it's in light of that that verse 10 says, Sing to the Lord a new song. We introduce this servant that Isaiah introduces, or rather God through Isaiah introduces, in this first of, uh, of, of several servant songs in Isaiah. And last time we looked at this, we concluded the servant can't be talking about Israel. Israel suppo- was supposed to be this servant. This is who they were supposed to be, but they failed. We also concluded that it couldn't be talking about King Cyrus of Persia, though he was being used by God as his servant to bring his people out of exile in Babylon. But there's a lot in that passage that does not apply to, uh, to Cyrus. So we concluded, rightly, and the new, I mean, Jesus even says he is the servant, so that's enough for us. Well, we concluded rightly that this servant is none other than the Son of God himself, Jesus Christ. And it's in light of this new revelation given to them about God's servant that we sing to the Lord a new song. This is all in the context of Israel's idol problem, right? Idolatry is a common theme that is going on throughout the book of Isaiah, and especially in these later chapters. Remember, just a few passages before this, we saw God put idols on trial. He said, all right, bring forth your gods. Uh, Let them tell the future. Okay, they can't tell the future? Okay, just have them tell the past and explain to us how all of the past is connected to now. Okay, Uh, do something good. You know what? Do something bad. Just do anything. And of course, the idols can't. You can't blame idols for not being able to do anything. They're not real. And, And what we're seeing here is not just God mocking idols and idolatry for the sake of the idolaters of the other nations, but he is equipping his people by telling them, don't follow them into their folly. Don't worship idols. Worship God. So God solves their idol problem by giving them the servant. And something that's amazing for you and me, because we are not ethnic Israel from the Old Covenant, right? We are not that nation. But chapter 42, verses 1 through 7, reveals to us that this servant would not just be for Israel, and not just Judah, but for the nations. For the nations. Verse 4, he says that he will not, the servant, the servant will not grow faint or be discouraged till he has established justice in the earth. And we looked at the, the fact that this is not talking about judgment, but it's talking about righteousness. He's going to bring his law to the earth. And implied in that is the gospel with it. And then in verse 6, the Lord says to the servant, I will give you as a covenant for the people a light for the nations to open the eyes that are blind. Brothers and sisters, this to us, as those who are all the way here in Las Vegas and had nothing to do with the Israel that we see in the Old Testament nationally and ethnically, this is incredibly good news for us. And I think sometimes we, we, we kind of lose sight of this because we were born with the reality thinking that salvation is for anyone in the world. This is what we were raised in and born again into. And I think we could take that for granted. But if we just take a look at Ephesians 2, keep your finger in Isaiah 42. But let's take a look at Ephesians 2. This will hopefully rightly orient us to how amazing it is that sinners in Las Vegas are saved by grace through faith in Christ. So in Ephesians chapter 2, let's read verses 11 through 13. Therefore remember that at one time you Gentiles in the flesh called the uncircumcision by what is called the circumcision, which is made in the flesh by hands. Remember that you were at that time separated from Christ, alienated from the commonwealth of Israel, and strangers to the covenants of promise, having no hope and without God in the world. But now in Christ Jesus, 
you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. So what we're seeing here is this comparison. The Jews had the promises. They had the covenant. They had all of the covenants and all of the promises given to uh, the, the, the serpent in the form of a curse, which was a promise for us that the serpent would be crushed, to, to the promises given to Abraham and through the Mosaic covenant. All of those the Jews had. You know, who didn't have those things were the Gentiles. If you were not Jewish, if you were not an Israelite, you were separated from the Messiah. You had no concept of him and therefore didn't feel a need for him. You, you were alienated from the commonwealth of Israel. God's people in the Old Covenant was Israel. And if you were a Gentile, you had absolutely nothing to do with them. You were alienated. In fact, there was a division between Jews and Gentiles. They were strangers to the covenants of promise. All of the rich promises that we now see in the Old Testament pointing forward to Jesus Christ, we were completely strangers of. And therefore, we had no hope. We were without God in the world. But now, in Christ Jesus, you who once were far off have been brought near by the blood of Christ. I'll say amen. Amen. Been brought near by the blood of Christ. Amen. We were nowhere near that geographical area that was promised to them. Nowhere near. And the gospel of Christ has come to you. And for many of you, you've believed it and have been saved. And even if you haven't believed in it, there is a great gift in the fact that you're hearing it now. It's incredible. It's incredible. We were completely separated from God's people and God's promises. We were completely separated from the Messiah. And in sending the servant, he came because God so loved the world that he gave his only son that whoever, Jew or Gentile, believes in him will not perish but have eternal life. So sing to the Lord a new song. Sing to the Lord a new song. Isn't he worthy of this? We sing this new song because of the servant whom he has sent. We sing, verse 10, his praise from the end of the earth. From the end of the earth. Why from the end of the earth? Because this good news of the servant wasn't just for Judah. It was for the nations also. Sinners like you and me, all of this way here in Las Vegas. So he calls then, because of this, not just for Judah to praise, but that his praise would go from the end of the earth. And then he elaborates on what he means by that. In verse 10, you who go down to the sea. When you think about from their perspective, the people who go down to the sea to go trade and uh, explore, navigate, they're at the end of the world. They don't have a concept that there's a people across the Atlantic Ocean like the Native Americans. They have, they have no concept of that. So from their perspective, when they're saying you who go down to the sea, that's an expression to say you all who are at the end of the earth. Praise him. Praise him. And not just the mariners, not just the seafarers, but also all that fills the sea. So this call to praise goes beyond just the humans there, but even the uh, sharks and the starfish, right? Now, sharks and starfish are not saved like we're saved, and yet creation groans for the redemption of creation. God is making all things new. Creation is broken, and through the servant, God is fixing it all. So you who go down to the sea, and all that fills it, but not just the people who are by the sea, but also the coastlands. This is considered, again, from their perspective, with a general revelation that they've had at the time. That's the end of the world is the lands on the coast, or perhaps the islands that were out in the sea. And their inhabitants as well. But not just them, who else? Verse 11, let the desert and its cities lift up their voice. So not just those by the water, those also in the desert, in the cities that are in, that are in the desert, 
Let them lift up their voice. The villages that, that Kedar inhabits. Kedar was a nomadic people, and they would settle uh, in villages in the Arabian Peninsula, which was very desert-like. And so what we're seeing here is this expansion of everybody. People from the end of the earth, you who go down to the sea, people who are in the desert, lift up your voice. Let them also lift up their voice. Not just them, what about the people in the mountains? Verse 11, the middle part. Let the habitants of Selah sing for joy. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. So Selah was, was the capital of Edom, which in and of itself is an, an excellent statement. That even people who were of Esau, in that ethnically speaking, should sing for joy as well. They should sing for joy. And by the way, in that, we see the nature of what this singing should be like. We should sing for joy. Not just sing, but sing joyfully. And not just joyfully, but loud. Let them shout from the top of the mountains. Is that not the kind of praise that God is due? Not some quiet, weak singing. Joyful, loud singing. And then verse 12. Let them give glory to the Lord. Singing that glorifies God. Now when we talk about giving glory to the Lord, this is not to say that God's glory is deficient in any way and needs to be filled up. When we're talking about giving glory to the Lord, we're talking about praising His glory, helping people to see His glory, magnifying the glory of God in the eyes of other people. God doesn't need it. He doesn't need to be glorified. He demands to be glorified because He deserves it, but it's also for us. To give glory to God is the most precious thing for the regenerate heart. Do we not love to see the glory of God? Do we not love to behold it in creation and in the scriptures in our own lives and therefore give glory to him? He deserves it and it's for our pleasure as well. Giving glory gives us, is, uh, is explained further in the second part of verse 12. And declare his praise in the coastlands. When we praise God, we give glory to him. And it's, again, this extends to the farthest places of the earth, including the coastlands. So, again, we see here the call to sing. It was a call for them to sing in light of the deliverance that they were anticipating, but it's also a call for us to sing in light of the deliverance that we have received and we will receive. What do we do with this, brothers and sisters? Sing to the Lord a new song. His mercies are new every morning. He deserves praise, not just here in Las Vegas, but to the ends of the earth. And what an amazing concept that that is, that we're singing the praises of Christ, not only with people in this room or even just in Las Vegas, but even in China, even in Pakistan and Iran and, uh, and Argentina, and believe it or not, even California, right? There are even believers there with whom we praise the Lord. And God is worthy of this worldwide praise all over the world. And it should be joyful. And it should be loud. Not for the sake of being loud. Don't walk away from this saying, well, I guess I got to sing louder. Sing louder because you're reflecting on the glories of God even more. If your singing is timid, and if it's quiet, you need to ask yourselves why that's the case. There are some brothers, nobody in here of course, who, who don't sing very well. They, they don't carry a tune very well. And one of my favorite sounds is their singing loudly because they don't care. They know they can't sing, but they've come to worship the Lord. So that's one of my favorite sounds. That's the way that our worship should be in light of what we've seen. You could, you could see how it might be insulting to the king 
if his praises are lackluster from his people. And on the other hand, how it honors him when we behold him as he is and sing to him a new song in response. God is worthy of such worship. So we've keep seen this call to sing. And now we see even more reasons to sing with number two, the zeal of our Savior. The zeal of our Savior. Read verses 13 and 14. The Lord goes out like a mighty man. Like a man of war, he stirs up his zeal. He cries out. He shouts aloud. He shows himself mighty against his foes. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. Now I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. So verse 13 says that Yahweh goes out like a mighty man. And don't think just a man that's strong like Michael Pope. It's talking about a mighty man like David's mighty men, right? Like, like the special forces soldiers. Not the conscripted soldier terrified at the prospect of battle, but the one who loves to go into battle. This is, this is the way that Yahweh goes out, like a mighty man, like a man of war, it says, like a soldier. He stirs up his zeal. And we can picture this. Imagine Israel lined up with its armies, the mighty man up front, the other uh, army over there waiting for this battle to ensue, and there's just this tension of waiting. You're, you're filled with adrenaline, and you're hankering to go into battle. And you hear somebody shout, ah! what do you do? You cry out. Verse 13, he cries out. He shouts aloud, ah! That's what's being pictured here. He shows himself mighty against his foes. He rushes into that battle headlong and is completely successful. That is the nature in which God wants us to understand how he goes in to save his people. Look at verse 14. For a long time I have held my peace. I have kept still and restrained myself. So they're in, they're in exile, or they would be. This was written 100 plus years even before they were taken into exile, but it was for their encouragement when they would be in exile. But it says, For a long time I have held my peace. For the 70-year period, his people have been in exile, and they have been being disciplined. There is a purpose for God exiling them, and there was a set amount of time. But God had not forgotten his people. You could imagine how people might think that. Right? Two generations into this exile, they're under Babylon's rule. Even Israelites and Judahites are worshiping the false gods of Babylon. Only a few are standing faithful. It may feel like God has just abandoned them. And the message here in verse 14 is, I have not abandoned you. I have long time held my peace. I have kept still. I have restrained myself. Now we have to understand that this is what theologians call anthropopathic language. Okay? So anthropomorphism, you may be familiar with more, talking about like God's hands. We know that God is spirit. He doesn't have hands. But that language helps us to grasp something. Same thing with anthropopathic language. God is not in one sense like set on doing this judgment, but he kind of regrets doing it, and he kind of wants to go in and save his people. This is just simply language that captures human emotions and intentions to help us grasp something. But we also don't want to discard this. God wants us to understand the way that he will go into his people, uh, go to save his people in a way that he is longing to do so. He is ready and eager to do so. That might encourage us as well. It should. Revelation 22.7, Jesus says, Behold, I am coming soon. And we read this 2,000 years after that was written, and we might feel like they might have felt, where is God? Has he abandoned us? And of course we say, no, he hasn't. But sometimes the emotions are rightly understood. And in fact, this is why some people have fallen into heresy. They just can't stand that 2,000 years later, Jesus said he's coming soon. 
So they come up with heretical ideas about him having come in A.D. 70. Second Peter chapter 3 helps us to understand this. Second Peter chapter 3. Peter is encouraging Christians to the same end here. And in 2 Peter 3, verses 8 through 10, we read this. But do not overlook this one fact, beloved, that with the Lord one day is as a thousand years and a thousand years as one day. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. But the day of the Lord will come like a thief, and then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. So the question may be, where is he? Where is he? We were anticipating that he would have come back by now. And remember, Peter's writing this in the first century. And Peter encourages them that with the Lord, one day is as a thousand years. So what may feel like a long time for us does not feel like a long time to God, who is outside of time. But beyond that, it's not just that, but he has good reasons for why he tarries. The Lord is not slow to fulfill his promise as some count slowness, but is patient towards you, not wishing that any should perish, but that all should reach repentance. Raise your hand if you have been saved in the last five years. If you were saved within the last five years, praise the Lord. Aren't you glad he didn't come back six years ago? No, I'm, I'm, I'm serious. I'm serious. He's, he was patient toward, one of the reasons he has not come back is because he was patient towards those people who just raised their hands. His will is to save all whom he has given to the Son. And that will take as long as it needs to take. And we should be grateful that he is bringing all of his people in. But when he comes, when he returns, it's going to be fast. Verse 10 of 2 Peter 3. The day of the Lord will come like a thief. Then the heavens will pass away with a roar, and the heavenly bodies will be burned up and dissolved, and the earth and the works that are done on it will be exposed. He will come like a thief in the night. It'll be quick. And that quickness expresses to us that he is not dragging his feet to save his people. When it's time, it's going to get done. When it's time, See, for a long time he's held his peace. He's kept still. He's restrained himself. Like, like the Savior looking down at Stephen getting martyred standing. He's restrained himself for his better purposes. But now, verse 14, I will cry out like a woman in labor. I will gasp and pant. I had to call Ariel Williams for this yesterday. She's a midwife. And trying to help understand this, right? We, Labor is not like what we see in the movies, where oh, her water breaks and then 10 seconds later, she has the baby in her arms. Many mothers wish that that were the case, but you want people know that, women know that labor is potentially days long in early labor, where there isn't that intense yet screaming type of pain, but it probably feels like the longest day or two that a woman has ever felt. Okay, so that's the, the anticipation. But then there comes this transition and um, advanced labor, I'm messing up the word, sorry, Ariel, where suddenly the pain becomes intense and the, and the shouting and the screaming happens. And this is what is another expression of the way that God is going to return. It's going to be like that intense moment of labor, crying out, gasping, and panting. So these are two illustrations for us that are vivid. The soldier one, in this labor one that expressed to us that God is going to come back zealously. That Christ is zealous to come back and save his people. And we may need that reminder when it feels like it's taking so long. When it's time, it's going to be quick. So we've seen the call to sing. We've seen the zeal of our Savior. And thirdly, we see the certainty of our salvation. The certainty of our salvation. 
Verses 15 and 16, God says, I will lay waste mountains and hills and dry up all their vegetation. I will turn the rivers into islands and dry up the pools. And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know. In paths that they have not known, I will guide them. I will turn the darkness before them into light, the rough places into level ground. These are the things that I do, and I do not forsake them. Okay, so God says that he's going to lay waste mountains and hills. The reason why this is impactful is because mountains and hills are in the Bible pictured as immovable. But to go and save his people, God's going to crush them. He's going to destroy mountains and hills. He's going to dry up all their vegetation. So uh, not just the mountains, but all of the trees and the, the, the bushes that might get in the way of saving his people. And by the way, this isn't talking about they're in God's way. It's talking about they're in his people's way. Right? God doesn't need to move mountains and hills and vegetation to go from one place to the other. He is omnipresent. He is everywhere but he is making the path straight for his people. What about bodies of water? Could bodies of water potentially prevent God from delivering his people? Exodus says, no. Right? The people are drawn out of Egypt and they find themselves at the Red Sea. They start complaining already. And God parts the sea for them to walk right through. That's the picture here. I will turn the rivers into islands. I will dry up the pools so that my people can just walk right over it. Verse 16, And I will lead the blind in a way that they do not know, in paths they have not known. I will guide them. So again, there's our clue that this is not talking about getting things out of God's way, but getting things out of his people's way. He, he is guiding the blind in a way that they do not know. And by the way, this is significant because we realize that it's a lot more difficult to navigate places that you're not familiar with, right? This echoes what we saw in Isaiah 40, verse 3, talking about Cyrus. No, I'm sorry, it's not 40, verse 3. Isaiah 41, verse 3. God says of Cyrus, he pursues the nations and passes on safely by paths his feet have not trod. Okay? And when we were in that passage, we pointed out that typically speaking in warfare, the nation that's being invaded has the home field advantage. Right? They understand the way that their land works. They understand the best places to hide, etc. But for King Cyrus, it was very easy. He went in, he'd never been there before, and God had granted him victory because he was using Cyrus to deliver his people. So the same idea is here in verse 16 of chapter 42. He's going to lead the blind in a way that they do not know. God himself is the one who guides his people out. So in the context of Babylon, he would use his means to get them from Babylonian captivity back to Jerusalem. But remember, it has been 70 years. People were born in Babylon. They hadn't seen Jerusalem but God was going to bring them back in paths that they have not known. He was going to guide them. And how much more has this been realized in the way that we have been delivered and continue to be delivered? We had no idea the way. We had absolutely no way to be right with the God of the universe. And even, even after he showed us the truth of the gospel of Jesus Christ, we still had no concept of how to actually follow him. And so he guides us in ways that we do not know. He does that through giving us his word. But beyond that, he gives us his own spirit to rightly understand his word and to walk in faithfulness according to it. Praise the Lord that he didn't merely save us and just leave the door open. Some people think this, right? They think that Jesus died on the cross for sinners and then just said, all right, you guys do what you're going to do with this. That would be bad news for me. That would be bad news for you. We wouldn't know what to do. And as, uh, as one preacher has said, if I could lose my salvation, I would. 
because of how, how our flesh continues to battle against us. But God didn't just leave it up to us. He gave us new hearts. He gave us new life to be able to see the truth of the gospel. And in this new life, he has given us the ability to walk in step with the spirit that he has given us. And in that greater way than even what we see here coming out of Babylonian exile, he guides us himself all the way home. Praise the Lord. In verse 16, he continues, I will turn the darkness before them into light. This is just kind of building on the, the blindness uh, metaphor. But now it's, you're blind because it's dark. You're blind because you can't see because there is no light. But God promises that he would turn darkness before them into light. And immediately, what that should remind you of is the Savior's words, I am the light of the world. Those who follow me will not walk in darkness. He leads his people out of darkness into light through his Son. And the rough places into level ground, he's going to turn the rough places into level ground. And this, by the way, is, is something also that we might take for granted because in Las Vegas, everything is kind of made flat for us. We got this flat carpet that you're on right now. When you leave this building, you'll have a flat sidewalk onto a flat parking lot, etc. So it's hard for us to grasp how, uh, uh, how this is a blessing. But imagine not being able to see and walking, say, in the wilderness in the desert. That's difficult. But God's salvation is so thorough that he would make it easy for his people to walk. He would give us a yoke that is easy and a burden that is light. And he does all of that again through his servant. And then he says this in verse 16, speaking to the certainty of what we were talking about. He says, these are the things I do. Some translations, if you're not using the elect standard version, the ESV, it says something along the lines of, these are the things I did, or these are the things that I have done. And I think that the difficulty in translating this is that the Hebrew word is, in fact, past tense. These are the things that I did or have done. But it would most rightly be understood this way. These are the things I have determined to do. These are the things that I said I will do, therefore, they're essentially as good as done. Right? This is similar to Romans 8, where it talks about those who, uh, whom he justified, he also glorified. Talking about our glorification in the past tense, where you look around and we have not been glorified yet, but it is so certain that he will accomplish it that it can be said in the past tense. And in the same way, he says, these are, things, these are the things I do. These are the things that I have done. These are the things that I have determined to do, and I do not forsake them. This is the glory of our salvation. This is the glory of our God who saves us. Because what he intends to do, he does. Not everyone can do that. There's this, um, this World War II movie that, uh, where a medic, their medic on the team gets shot, and they're trying to reassure him, we're going we're to set you right, just tell us what to do. And they can't. He dies. So they said they would save him, but they couldn't. Not so with God. When he says that he's going to save us, he will. These are the things he does. These are the things that he already has done, and he does not forsake these things. This is why they're coming out of Babylonian exile, even though they weren't fully repentant, godly people, was certain, because he said he was going to do it. And the same is true for you and me. We are not, in our own strength, obedient in every way. Even with the Spirit's help, we continue to struggle with sin. And yet the guarantee that he will bring us all the way home is certain. These are the things that God has done, and he does not forsake them. That gives us great hope in our current exile here. 
our salvation is certain. So walk with him in confidence. He who began a work in you is going to complete it. Praise be to God. So we see this call to sing. We see the zeal of our Savior. We see the certainty of our salvation. Fourth and lastly, we see the shame of his enemies. The shame of his enemies. Look at verse 17. They are turned back and utterly put to shame who trust in carved idols, who say to metal images, you are our gods. So those people who oppose God and oppose his people and therefore trust in carved idols and metal images and call those statues their gods, they'd be turned back. When we see this language of being turned back, tied with shame, the idea is that they're going to be turned back in dismay. They'll be turned back in disappointment. Because what they thought was real will actually be exposed to be false. This is actually a terrifying thought. It's a terrifying thought. Uh, Recently, I saw on somebody's post online, a Christian's post, an atheist decided to go on there and troll and said something along the lines of, you know God's imaginary, right? You know he's not real. Then he kept pressing the issue in this post on this conversation. And it should cause us to shudder to think that if that man dies without repenting, okay, and I don't want that for him, but if that happens, he's immediately going to face the God whom he mocked. Or consider the... Um, most recent mass shooting in Maine, right? This, this man in his wickedness put to death 18 image bearers of God and injured many more, and they couldn't find him for several days, and they found him having a self-inflicted gunshot wound, okay? He thought, this causes me to shudder, brothers and sisters, and hopefully it does to you too. He thought that he was about to escape whatever it was he was trying to escape, and in a moment met the judge of his soul. People feel like he somehow got away with it. He didn't get away with it. He's facing the wrath of God for it. Now we're speaking about this as something that is bad, and it it is bad, and by the way, let us express to you this morning, we don't, if you don't believe in Christ, we don't want that for you. When we make this division of believer and unbeliever, we're not trying to create a separation between us so that you don't come and believe. We want you to place your trust in Jesus Christ so that when you die or when he returns, you will not be turned away in dismay or utterly put to shame. We want you singing with us today and 10 years from now, and 10,000 years from now. Don't choose to be turned back and utterly put to shame. Why would you die? Live in Jesus Christ. So we're speaking about this in, in a sad way, and, and we should. But, but the way that God is saying it here is that this is a good thing. This is a good thing. And of course, this needs to be harmonized with what is said of God in Ezekiel when he says that he does not delight in the death of the wicked, but that he would rather that they repent. But at the same time, if they will not, God is seen as loving justice being served. Justice will be served. If you continue, if you ignore what I just, what I just pleaded with you, to trust in Jesus Christ for your salvation, and I'll plead with you again. It doesn't hurt me to do it, and I'll say it again. Trust in Jesus Christ and have all of your sins forgiven. But if you choose not to, God's justice will be served on you, and it will be a good thing. That's hard for us to emotionally grasp because we have loved ones who refuse to trust in Jesus Christ now. But with clearer eyes, we will see that God's justice and goodness is revealed in the fact that those who rejected his Messiah will instead face his wrath. 
Those who trusted in idols and said to those idols, you are our gods, will face the just judgment that they deserve. But again, that time is not yet. Turn to him and live. Let's summarize this. We saw the call to sing, the zeal of our Savior, the certainty of our salvation, and the shame of his enemies. What do we do with this? Sing. We're going to sing because our Savior is coming back. And when we, when we sing, it's not just going to merely be out of obligation. It won't be monotonous and droll. We will sing to Yahweh a new song because of what he's revealed to us in the servant. We will sing to him a new song because he saved wretched sinners like us all the way over here. We're going to sing to him, give glory to him, and sing joyfully. We're going to shout aloud from the mountaintops. Anyone in? Scattered applause? I'm for it, right? Praise the Lord. He is worthy of this kind of singing. So we're going to sing because of that. Also, another application, brothers and sisters, in this light momentary affliction, recognize that it is preparing for us a weight of glory beyond comparison. It may feel like God's taking a long time, but he's not. And when he comes, it'll be quick. And the vindication of his people will be instant. And people will see that you who they thought were foolish were actually wise. And he's going to fulfill all of his promises to us. He has promised us eternal life. He has promised us a constant mediation by his blood. He has promised not to leave us in our sin, but to continue to work in us, both to will and to work for his good pleasure. He has promised that if we die before he returns, that we will be with him in paradise. And he has promised that when he returns, that we will rise from the grave victorious over death and sin. And he will take us home to the place that he has promised for us. Let that motivate your singing as well. And finally, again, don't be turned back and utterly put to shame. This is a gift from God to you now, to hear this once again. You may have heard this gospel a million times, but hear it again. Jesus Christ died on the cross for sinners like you. And if you believe in him, all of your sins will be forgiven, every single one. And you will get a new heart that will sing his praises. Praise be to God. Let's pray. Lord, thank you for this reminder and this guarantee, this promise of you, our unchangeable God, that you will bring salvation to completion. Thank you for saving sinners like us, making us righteous in your eyes by the blood of your Son. Thank you for continuing to save us by not letting us to continue to walk the way we used to, but increasingly walk in Christ-likeness by the help of your Spirit, our Helper. And thank you, O Lord, for this guarantee that you're going to bring us all the way home. Help us, O Lord, to not drop a single anchor, but to keep moving forward by your grace. In Christ's name we pray and we'll sing. Amen.